I'm Shannon. I'm Emma. And welcome to This Podcast Doesn't Exist. What do we got today? Uh, what we, are you going to tell me? We, I don't want to disappoint you, but it is not a conspiracy, nor is it a an unsolved case. It's just some history that has some uncertain elements and is very sad. Fun? Yeah, you know, it can't all be ghosts and spooky houses. Fair enough. That's fine. I will say at the top here, content warning for child abuse and family separation. For anyone who maybe is not in a space where you want to learn about that, we we bid you well. Come back next time. Yeah, join us for the next episode. (laughs) Join us next Friday. Alrighty, so... Today we will be learning about Georgia Tan and the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Okay. Yeah. Georgia Tan is a person? Yes, that's okay. her name. Do you have any idea? I have no clue where all we're right. going at all. Well, on that note, I first learned about this topic when I was listening to the audiobook of a, of a novel by Lisa Wingate. It's called Before We Were Yours. And I honestly thought it had to be fictional because it seems so outrageous and so terrible that there's no way it could have happened for real. There's no way that people could have let this happen. Spoiler alert, it's all real. I'm so sad. Truly. And I haven't even heard any of it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, buckle in, folks. <laughs> Alrighty. So, our story starts with an individual named Georgia Tan. Now I'm going to show Emma a photo. All of this will be on the Instagram. But this is Georgia Tan. She looks kind of scary. She looks like she's sucked in her lips. Like she's just gone (laughs) to her lips. A little bit. I mean, granted, I think when we look at images, knowing the history of someone, we like read into it, right? Like if we know someone's terrible, you look at images and you're like, oh, they look sinister. But. That's fair. There are, like, contemporary reports of the time of people saying she was very intimidating and, like, scary. Okay. Um, but anyway, we'll get there. We're starting at the beginning. Beulah George, Georgia, nickname, uh, Tan, was born in 1891 in Philadelphia, Mississippi. Whoa, there's a twist! <laughs> we only... <laughs> We only have five names for anything in this country. Like, if you go to any train station, it'll probably be called Penn Station. That's fair. Denver, New York, New York City, whatever. There's a lot of union stations, too. Yes. Um, So, she was named for both of her parents. Her mother's name was Beulah. Her dad's name was George. That's kind of cute. Beulah George. (laughs) Beulah is a name. I mean... 1800s Mississippi. Fair. But she went by Georgia. Georgia Tan. Um, She had an older brother named Rob Roy Tan, who was potentially adopted, uh, which will... Come back into play? Well, it'll just... Its significance will present itself. Um, And this was only mentioned in one source that he was potentially adopted. Um, It wasn't really elaborated upon. So just a brief mention, but we won't go into it. Her father was a powerful judge down in Mississippi, and she really wanted to pursue law as well. She had a very close but complicated relationship with her father. I think she really looked up to him, but maybe he had desired another son or just wasn't comfortable expressing uh, love and affection, toxic Mm. masculinity, what's up? Um, but so she wanted to pursue the law, but her father deemed it too masculine, too manly, not an option. Um, again, this is the early 1900s at this point, so not too surprising. So in 1913, she graduates with a degree in music from Martha Washington College here in the state of Virginia. Whoop, whoop. And... She tried out a career in teaching for a little while, but it was not a good fit whatsoever. Did you say Martha Washington College? Yes. Do you mean Mary Washington? 
No. There's a Martha Washington College. Well, now you're making me... Because Mary Washington is where Liam goes. What up, Liam? My little brother. He's not really that little. Martha Washington College was established as an educational institution for young women by the Independent Order of Odd Fellows McCabe Lodge Number 56... <laughs> In 1853, when they purchased the land for the construction of the college, um, it looks like they maybe um, got absorbed by Emory and Henry. Oh, okay. So that that makes more sense to me. I I, I think just it's in Abingdon. Abingdon. All right. I don't know where that is. Anyway, but okay. Yes, established Martha Washington College was a real college at some point. Yeah, Martha. She Martha. Was the mother of our nation. Mm-hmm. She can deal with a lot of stuff. Anyway, um, so she tried out teaching. It was not a good fit whatsoever. Uh, you will soon see why. Uh-oh. Uh oh. I I'm really trying to not upsell the tragedy. No, but you're but, baiting this hook. I mean, I'm trying. Um. Anyway. So then, teaching, not a great option. Music, she didn't really have any interest in music from what I could tell from the research. It and was you just... got the degree in music? Well, she wanted to pursue law and her parents were like, no. So, so I think she... was just... Yeah, they just were like, do this. And she was like, okay. Um, Annoying. Yeah. So she turns to the relatively young field of social work. And one article posits that she'd been doing a version of this since her teen years where she would go volunteering with the poor, the less fortunate, instead of going to parties and dances. Okay. The article was pretty shady. It was kind of implying that she wasn't getting invited, so it was kind of a shield <laughs> that she had. Oh, that's kind of sad. Um, You know, like, oh, I'm not getting asked out, so... I I'm, might as well. But I, I'm not a bit... I have so much volunteer work to do, so okay. it's fine. Um, which was kind of sad. That is a little I sad. I thought it was a little odd that the article was so shady. I was like, do you have any evidence of her writing this in journals or anything? Of like, this oh, is, Susan yeah. Kelly's dance and I didn't get invited. Um, but yeah, so she is turning to the field of social work. Okay. We're going to zoom out for a moment to a broader scope. Adoption regulations at this time were incredibly lax at this point in history. Children were seen more as belongings than as tiny humans. And in the early 1900s, formalized adoptions were pretty rare. Just kind of got absorbed into a family. Yeah, you know. Shout out to you, Mama and Dr. K. What's up? (laughs) Um, uh, But so it was not a formal thing. But in the 1920s, adoption was actually sold as a benefit to help out society. And I'm going to read you this quote, which really just sums it up, I think, um, in all of the great and not so great ways. Okay. Quote, according to one ad from the National Home Finding Society, adopting would, quote within a quote, reduce divorces, banditry, murder, and control births, fill all the churches, and do real missionary work at home and abroad, exchanging immigrants for Americans, and stopping some of the road leading to war. End quote. Wait, it would essentially stop pregnancy? No, they're trying to say that... Sorry, I got... I, 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 I absorbed all of that. I got all of that. Mm-hmm. However, I got kind of stuck on the idea... That it would reduce the amount of children that you end up having yourself. Like that was somehow... I... Never mind. I never don't mind. know. All of that is a little I weird. I also can see the confusion uh, in how adoption would control... Maybe it would control births um, if somebody had, you know, had the misfortune of losing a baby yeah. before it was born and they didn't want to try again themselves. Maybe that's what they mean. But yes, I could see that that's a little um, counterintuitive of like, adoption is popular. That'll help you not tell have people more to kids. not have kids that they don't want. Somehow adoption is birth control. For them to be. Adoption is birth control. I don't know. Um, Sorry. But you know, obviously there's some really problematic 
parts of that. Uh, uh, yeah, the uh, trading immigrants for Americans thing. Yeah. It was a little odd. I don't yeah. know. Was international adoption a thing at this point in time? I would assume no. So then much. how does that help they're already there? Maybe. I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm getting very I did, wrapped up in this I did court. not go deep into the, I know. Uh, to the bigotry of the National Home Finding Society. I just got very wrapped up in that quote. I apologize. <laughs> there was a lot going on. Yes. Um, so at this time, again, the 1920s, eugenics were totally a thing. Yep. Barf. Uh, so certain types of babies, a.k.a. Blonde-haired, blue-eyed angels from, quote, good families were more desirable in the adoption market. And I do, I do say market, which we'll get into shortly. Also, which I thought this was an interesting historical fact, baby formula was a product that was also gaining popularity during this time and effectiveness. So that would allow busy, wealthy women to feed an infant that was not theirs by birth. Um, so just an interesting thing that I never would have considered. Yeah. But yes. Yeah, you, you wouldn't have a need for a wet nurse. You wouldn't right. have a need for exactly any of that. Huh. All right. So that was our broad scope. We're zooming back in on Georgia Tan. She started at the Kate McWillie Powers Receiving Home for Children. McWillie. In Jackson, which was affiliated with the Mississippi Children's Home Society. Um, okay. So, children's home societies were a thing, Yeah, I gather from this research. Uh, so, she was fired from this first position in Jackson for her child-placing methods, um. a.k.a. Uh, removing children from poor households without just cause or oh, both, both parents' permission. Wait, so she would just go to a house and basically kidnap a kid? Um, let's keep going. Okay. Yeah, Emma's not going to... I'm not okay already. ...like this. I mean, not that I liked it. None of us like it, but... Still fascinated. I'm morbidly fascinated by all of this. Come closer. You have a piece of hair that has been bothering me since we started recording. All right. I feel better now. The, behind the <laughs> so scenes. So sorry. It was just like sitting on your shoulder the waving juicy, at me. The juicy, the juicy Easter eggs that we all care about. Okay. You're welcome. So after this in Jackson, she does a brief stint in Texas, uh, during which she adopts her own daughter named June in 1922. Did she kidnap this kid? It did not say. Okay. Sorry. I'm now very concerned. You're... I should have been concerned at the top when You're... you gave the disclaimer. <laughs> your concern is valid. Okay. Um, so, and then on an unexpectedly related note, she adopted someone else in 1943 uh, named Anne Atwood Hollinsworth, who is suspected slash thought to be Tan's same-sex life partner. Adult adoption was common between queer couples because it was the only way to ensure the legal um, passage right, of property passage. Yeah. and everything. Some, I mean, now that gay marriage is legal, God bless. That's not necessary, but before that, it, even up into the, the 2000s, people were doing this, um, adopting okay. their their partners so that they could leave their home to them if, if they passed. Okay, well, for, that makes sense. When then. they passed. Yes. So this this person was an actual adult when they were adopted. Yes, Okay. correct. Um, also on the, on the note of adult adoption, uh, Emma and Lewis might have to take me in if they move to the E, uh, to the UK to escape this dumpster fire of a country, depending, this will come out after the this, election. Yes, this will. Uh, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, we will know the results. Um, and we'll also know whether or not we'll be recording in the UK. Yeah. Hopefully the dance industry is really... <laughs> <laughs> able to support Lewis during this challenging time, but we know there's lots of old books in, in the UK for, for you to fix. Yeah. So hopefully you can adult adopt me and I too can get out of the country if necessary. I'm, I'm fine with that. Okay, great. Yeah. <laughs> I I mean, I'll ask Lewis, but we'll we'll know we'll know by the time this comes out whether or not we're gonna be doing anything like yes. that. Um so 
one article that I did not source from um, because most of the information I was getting from other places and also this note kind of rubbed me the wrong way. Uh-oh. Uh, but one article posited that as a, quote, butch lesbian in the 1940s and 50s, Tan conducted her nefarious business practices as the only form of societal power that was attainable to her. Wow. Because, you know, as a butch lesbian, she was not able or chose not to um, bear children, which in that time, and in some people's modern day eyes, was the only source of power for women. Basically, if you weren't able to be a wife and mother, society didn't care about you. Um, But in doing what she did, then she's... Exerting power. That was her way of doing that. Um, Did this article... Was this like a recent article, I'm assuming? I don't recall the date. Okay. To be honest. Most of what... I'm wondering the, like, etymology of butch for that specific... Yeah. I don't know. I think that viewpoint is far from nuanced and kind of gross, and I'm not really going to get into it. Fair enough. Um, I don't think her sexuality has any bearing on her evilness. <laughs> yeah. Because um, <laughs> I can tell she's evil. Yeah. Truly. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I'm right. I'm um, right. Yes. Oy. Um, I didn't put this in my notes, but one of the articles, I believe it was from the LA Times, um, which is in my sources in the show notes. Uh, But they interviewed one of her uh, victims, and this woman just had such a brilliant quote. It was like, the Bible tells you not to hate anyone, but if I saw Georgia Tan, like, I... uh, She summed it up so well, I should have written it down. But basically, like, I would spit on her grave and not feel bad about it. (laughs) And I was like, yes, well... Um, okay. So, now we're getting more into the the meat of the situation. So, between 1922 and 1924, sources differ, which was really driving me nuts, um, but somewhere in there, the early 1920s, Tan moves to Memphis, Tennessee to take a position as executive secretary at the Memphis branch of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. She was able to get this position because her father is a very powerful judge in Mississippi. He has connections. So even though she was fired, she was able to... That's frustrating. Yes. Okay. I'm sure they didn't say, you're fired. I'm sure they, in their southern way, were like, removed or relocated. Relocated is probably a good word. Yeah. Um, Looking at you, Catholic Church. (laughs) Anyway, um, by 1929, she stages a takeover and makes herself the executive director. Wait, stages a coup in the home? Yeah. Details were not listed. She, she, there was a takeover and she's now anyone? I don't think so. (laughs) That would probably be the top of it. Um, Shannon's mad at me <laughs> She's like, no, no. You we idiot. have so much to get to. I'm so sorry. I'm just, I'm talkative because I'm very nervous. So, 1929, she's now the head of everything and thus begins what I have deemed her reign of terror because here we go. Okay. All right. So the broad view. Georgia Tan was in the business of selling children to desperate would-be parents who could afford it. Uh, Between the years of 1924 and 1950, it's estimated that over 5,000 children were stolen by Tan and her network, with as many as 500 dying while in the care of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. Whoa. Mm -hmm. And it's believed she made more than $1 million from taking and selling children, which is about $11 million in today's money. Holy crap. Mm Mm-hmm. Her tactics to give you an idea of how the heck this could happen. Tan had a network of watchers. So nurses, doctors, social workers, police that would track usually poor children at riversides, shanty towns, even just walking home from school. And she would also visit prisons and mental institutions uh, to prey upon scared women, usually single mothers out of wedlock, 
um, and prey upon their fear and their shame of being pregnant, usually in not great situations. Uh, sometimes kids were literally snatched from yards or from the riverside. Tan was also fond of traveling in fancy black cars, and she would offer rides to these kids. Most of these children had never seen a car before, never been inside one, and she's like a, a white lady. Also, Stranger Danger was probably not really a... No, that was an 80s thing. Yeah. Thanks, serial killers. Um, <laughs> but, you know, they... That's not a phrase that I'd ever hear. Put it on the merch. <laughs> but, yeah, so she would just offer to give them rides, and they would be like, sure. You've seen the photo. You will see the photo, listeners, on the Instagram. She is a relatively intimidating person. If Yeah. If she... If she told me to do something, I'd probably be like, uh, Yeah, she, okay. reads, she reads as an authoritarian figure. Yeah. And also, all of the people in her network are also... Authority figures. Right. Like, you're not going to tell a police officer... Or doctor. No. Yeah. Uh, okay. So, sometimes it was... Kid, like, literally kidnapping, snatching children from yards. Other times, she would play the role of a benevolent helper. Uh-oh. So, if she had been visiting an apartment complex or was around, and she would approach the family and say, you know, oh, I noticed your baby is sick. I could take them to the hospital for a free checkup. Um, but she would explain away any uncertain parents by saying that if they came, that there would be a really big, there would be a large bill for the checkup services. So, also, keep in mind, she started in 1929. The Great Depression yeah. is upon us. So, people are desperate. She's preying upon poor families yeah. that live on houseboats and in shanty towns. So, you know, those parents were likely racked with guilt for the rest of their lives, right? I'm sure, but... To trust a good Samaritan, seemingly, because you just want your child to be safe and healthy, and you don't have the resources to... Do so. To provide those, so... Yeah, that's so sad. Um, you know, so whether she took the child um, with permission, or the children got in the car for a ride, those children never came home. Uh, so she and her associates were known to lie to new parents, saying that their newborn had died. That's And that the terrible. burial had been taken care of. Meanwhile, the baby is being handed out the back door to one of Tam's associates. That's so terrible. Mm-hmm. Sometimes she would approach mothers who were still under sedation from giving birth and asked them to sign papers, and they thought they were authorizing care for their newborn, when in fact they were signing away their parental rights. So, both are terrible. One, yeah. you think your baby is dead, and you haven't even like gone to hold them, see them. Or two, when you come to, you think you still have a baby, and then you go, and the hospital's like, we don't have a baby here that's yours. Oh my god! Like these these kids are with the Tennessee Children's Home. Ah, <laughs> sorry for that. Yeah. But, oh my gosh. Uh, yes. So in order to continue beyond the initial kidnapping of these children, Georgia Tan would lie about everything. She would change their names, their ages, their birth parents' backstories because, again. Going back to the idea of eugenics and good families, she would lie and say, oh, yes, this, this baby's mother is a beautiful, smart musician, and the father is in medical school. They just can't afford to have a baby. So then rich people are like, ooh, yay, a baby who's probably smart. She would lie about their religion. So a lot of um, different societies would not adopt to people who were Jewish. So she would just shoop, shoop, shoop. You're no longer, your parents are no longer Southern Baptists. You're from a, quote, good Jewish family. And she would sell those babies off to these families. They were raised Jewish. And then 
later on in their life they find out they are not culturally you know they are not genetically (laughs) jewish at all um basically she would just lie about anything to make a sale so sometimes she would keep siblings together because it was a good aesthetic um in the in the novel that i mentioned at the top um she kept several of the siblings together because they were all beautiful little blonde nice little package little children um but the one sister who had really dark hair and features like gone yeah because that said while the main market was for newborns she would take children to fill her oh yeah her quota her inventory uh yes she would place ads in the newspaper for newborns with titles such as yours for the asking and they'd like to be your christmas gift whoa uh every year there was a christmas raffle you could buy tickets and there were 20 to 30 children um, you raffle a kid mm-hmm. but to the public they thought these were you know poor unfortunate orphans who had been given up or whose parents died and they were thinking this was a way to to help so none of that money went to the society of course not it all went into tan's pocket of course um, and then I have a couple examples of the newspaper ads on your show, Emma, but you all can find them on the Instagram. So here's one. Oh, baby. With a cute smiling baby. And it says, Nancy, just 11 months old, needs home. Can you say no? And then there's, here's one, um, of the Christmas ones. They'd like to be your Christmas gift. Oh, so, that's so sad. You know, very... Those poor babies. Sweet-looking white children, um, put in the newspaper, like, they're puppies or something. Seriously. Although animals are also not Christmas gifts. Sorry. No. Unless you're responsible and you're prepared to have an animal for all of its life, don't do that living things are not gifts unless they're plants (laughs) sentient living things are not gifts (laughs) yes as i mentioned tan was not working alone right she has her network yeah and in order to get away with all of this she has some co-conspirators in very key positions first one we're going to talk about is a man called eh boss nickname crump which like (laughs) what a name crump like crump keith yeah uh so throughout tan's career sometimes he was the mayor of memphis even when he wasn't the mayor he was the head of a very influential political machine okay so he was able to deflect inquiries into her activities in exchange for kickbacks so no man the welfare of children but you gave me some money, so we don't have to talk about it. The other key person was an individual called Judge Camille Kelly. She presided over the juvenile court in Shelby County for 30 years. And she and Tan had an associate in the welfare office. So whenever a single and or impoverished mother would apply for benefits, that person would be... Calling up Judge Kelly, ring, ring, hey. And the judge would send a deputy out to pick up the children and place them in Tan's care because she would claim that the children were not being cared for adequately and needed to be placed in the care of the Tennessee Children's Home Society. so awful. Yep. Terrible. All of this is awful. (laughs) And... We're not even at the really, really bad stuff, are we? Nope. Oh, gosh. We're not. And it's just, I mean, I think it's truly awful that anyone could do this, but I guess it's me leaning into societal stereotypes about gender, but the fact that it's another woman who is allowing this to happen and benefiting from this just is gross to me. Yeah, it feels grosser. It's all gross. Anyway, Tennessee law stated that adoptions should be done in-state- for a fee of $7, which is about $75 in today's money. Okay, so, huh? <laughs> Tan, however, did business with anyone who could pay her fees, which could range from 
$1,000 per child, oh, which golly. is about 10 k today, up to $5,000 in any state and as far away as the UK. So earlier you mentioned, is international adoption a thing? The answer was not so much. Tan, however... Made it a thing. Made it a thing. Um, and she would slap on extra charges for everything. So travel, for clothing, home visits, uh, escorts for the children to transport them to their new homes, lawyer fees. Nickel and diming these parents who are buying a kid. Yes, correct. And it all goes into her pocket. Well, of course. Yes. And you're going to be, I was so mad. You're going to be mad. We're all going to be mad. Sometimes she would even come back after the adoption had been completed and blackmail parents for more money. How? Either on the basis of late payments or she would claim that a child's birth family was trying to get them back. But if they paid Tan's lawyers more money, she could take care of the problem. She'd make it go away. Meanwhile, these parents, most of them don't even know where their kids have ended up. And even if they do know where they are, they can't get to them. There are, like, bars on the gates of this yard. It's so sad. In the novel, at one point, some of their family friends and maybe the father, I don't recall, but they are able to, to find the children and she, like, talks to them through the gate, but they she has to make a plan to get... It's a whole thing. But most... There were very rarely any parents who were actually threatening to sue. Yeah. Also, with what resources? Yeah. You live on a, she's, a shanty boat in the river. Yeah, she's victimizing poor communities purely because she knows that they can't do anything about it. Yes. And she is she is being terrible to everybody along... She's the people who are losing their child, the people who are getting a child because they're being nickeled and dimed. Many of these would-be parents came from out of state because their age, usually they were in their 40s or their 50s, disqualified them from adopting in their home states. So, there was an age limit on... on... Mm-hmm. I guess huh. people thought they want to put a baby in with a Younger young, healthy family. family so that, you know, you don't want to their adopt to guaranteed. someone in their 60s who might die and then the child is, you know, lost again. Okay. It's not, I mean, it's di- it, 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 things are different now with modern medicine because this yeah. is like the 30s, but like... Exactly. Okay. Precisely. So she did a lot of business in New York and California specifically uh, with performers and politicians. Here are some notable names of people Uh-oh. who adopted from Georgia Tan. Uh, you have performers Dick Powell and June Allison, Smiley Burnett, and New York Governor Herbert Lehman. Uh, 19, Herbert. In 1947, Joan Crawford adopted twins, Kathy and Cindy. I knew that. Which, I was just doing, like, the weird Wikipedia thing. Here's yeah. a little photo, also on the Instagram. Oh, goodness. Um, they're very cute. But again, like, twins. Mm-hmm. She kept them together. Tanded. All right. And now I'm just going to renew the content warning for child abuse and other terrible things. Um, maybe we could put a timestamp in the show notes of when we kind of end this section. So, the main receiving home of the Tennessee Children's Home Society was a beautiful home. Oh, that is really pretty. But just full of lies and and horror. Great. (laughs) So, children who were deemed defective or ugly. What made you defective? If you had some sort of congenital disorder or an obvious... Physical Health. malady or something. Yes. Um, something was up. Uh, Which, it's Why terrible. take them anyway? Exactly. But like... <laughs> yeah. I why don't... take them anyway if, if it's noticeable? I mean, perhaps there were some people who legitimately surrendered children of their own accord. I would assume if this is a, a, a like, orphanage, that there has to be some legitimate, like... Right. Children, child abandonment... Policy. Policy. But, like, 
Yes. Wait, I was only focusing on the terrible things. I didn't look into the legitimate <laughs> aspects yeah. of this. Um, but children who were deemed defective or ugly uh, would be neglected and in some cases left left to die. Um, like just not fed or taken care of? Just like mm-hmm. left in a room? Left in the sun. Left in the sun? That's what it said in the article. Like a raisin. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm just gonna let you sit in that yeah. for a second. I'm gonna sit here. I apologize. My brain is on high alert. Yeah. I'm trying to make good anxious. out of this as much as I can. Alright, so some of the the children who passed away were buried in the backyard of the main house. Oof. But many are unknown. Uh, where their final resting place is. Tan favored cremation uh, because it left no evidence. That's so awful. Right? She's thinking through this stuff, and I think that's what makes me hate it. Oh, it's terrible. Yes. I mean, I hate it anyway, it's regardless. It's calculated. But like... It's cold. It's a business venture. Yeah. Uh... Um, there was a memorial erected in 2015, um, in one of the cemeteries in Memphis to honor those whose final resting places are unknown. And I'm just going to read you a little excerpt from the inscription on that memorial. In memory of all the hundreds who died under the cold, hard hand of the Tennessee Children's Home Society, their final resting place unknown their final piece, a blessing. Um, and the picture was really sweet. There were little children's toys on one of the Aww. little ledges. Um, yeah. So in 1945, between 40 and 50 children died due to an untreated dysentery outbreak. Um, just really unfortunate. Don't have more details on that but just proof that tan did not care about the individuals that were under her care it was all about merchandise and moving the merchandise that seems like that follows it tracks with what we are learning yeah sexual abuse was also i was so afraid of this So, sexual abuse was also rampant, both from Tan herself and from hired staff, particularly male drug addicts and pedophiles that were hired hired to supervise the children. So, she would just hire whoever she could pay to be like, yeah, go ahead. Yep. Babies and toddlers were drugged to keep them quiet and cherubic until the finalization of the sale. Because who wants to adopt like a red faced screaming baby? A normal a normal kid? A truly normal child. (laughs) All babies cry. (laughs) Yep. Um, so what would happen uh is that the children would be bathed and dressed nicely for viewing parties with potential uh parents. So Sometimes they were held at the receiving home. Sometimes they would be taken elsewhere in the big black cars that Tan liked to drive. Um, To present this picture that everything's great, everything's wonderful. They're well taken care of. Mm -hmm. But when they were not in those uh, viewing parties, they were very much left to their own devices Children had to care for other children younger than them and would be punished for doing a poor job. (laughs) Doing a poor job? How? How could they possibly do any worse than this woman? What is she expecting from them? Oh, good luck. Hope you feed them. Like, that's the minimum. The minimum. Sorry. (laughs) Continue. Yes. So, also, I didn't read this in specific articles, but in the novel, there's the impression that Tan is very much handling the business side of things. She doesn't get involved with the day-to-day, so she's not in the home yelling at children and feeding them and doing that. She has staff that... She just acquires them, drops them off, and then works with the numbers. Yeah. All right. 
We're moving on to some more positivity. Oh. The okay. downfall. The downfall okay. of Georgia thank, Tan. Thank goodness. So, in 1948, wow. Tennessee. That's a long time. I'm so sorry. She keeps, she's mad at me. <laughs> she just wants to get this over with and I'm not letting her. I mean, you're just, I appreciate your I'm emotional. I'm so reactive to this. Your exclamations. I'm sorry. It's not so much discourse this episode, just emotion. Yeah. So in 1948, Tennessee elects a new governor, Gordon Browning. He actually was the governor way back in the day in like the teens. Okay. He gets elected again in 1948. So uh, Boss Crump, if you remember him and his political machine. Yes. Uh, No good. Sorry. (laughs) Crump and his political machine lose power so that helps um, because there are fewer people protecting Tan. Governor Browning appoints a special investigator to look into Tan and her adoption practices. Yes, thank you. Uh-oh. Yes. Okay, never mind. She no, made a face. <laughs> no, it's it's good, but it's not going to be as satisfying as you want it to be. Oh. It's going to be incredibly frustrating. Okay. Uh, which is proof that this is real life and not something fictional because if this were a historical novel or a movie it would have wrapped up much more satisfactorily okay on september 12 1950 governor browning holds a press conference bringing tan's profiteering practices to light so that's good okay people are now learning about this however even so most of the accusations focus on pocketing money from a state-funded enterprise Rather than on kidnapping. Or, you know, abuse and murder. Yeah. Of children. Yeah. Oh, so they're more, they're more concerned with the stealing of money than the stealing of children. Yes. I don't know. <sighs> I, I didn't. You weren't there. I wasn't there. I didn't read the report. Um, but perhaps it's a case of it's easier to prove like Al Capone. Yes, like, we got you on tax fraud. on technicalities yeah. kind of thing. And this is where that. it is really just not satisfying. Mm-hmm. Three days after this press conference, Georgia Tan dies. No! Oh, no! <laughs> due to untreated uterine cancer. Oh, that's sad, but also like, kind oh, of. Oh, golly. I mean, appropriate. That's... Yeah, I was gonna say, kind of karmically relevant. And here's the kicker: there's so many kickers. She left no money to children's causes or to the Tennessee Children's Home Society. And how much money did she have? A lot. A million dollars at the very least in that day's money. So eleven million today. Okay, so all of her money went to her adopted, quote unquote, children. I potentially would assume so. Yeah. And then the home was closed two months later. So the end of 1950. That's thankful. Yes. But and also what happened to those kids? It Well, that's why it was two months. They had to take time to find okay. safe homes for all of those children. Because you can't just shut the then. doors of an orphanage. I would hope not. Nope. And then the dissatisfaction continues. Mm-hmm. So the <laughs> her accomplice, Judge Kelly was permitted to resign in November of that year and faced no prosecution. Thanks. So basically they were like, just just go ahead, step down, and we won't do nothing? Yep. Thanks to the lingering support of Crump's political machine. Ugh. And then she dies of a stroke five years later. Who? Judge Kelly. Oh. I didn't know it was a woman. Yeah. Oh. Camille Kelly. Oh. Remember I the first name. I did all the I'm talking sorry. about gender and how it felt terrible. That I thought she that was a you woman. meant that it was that was like the secretary who was doing that of like found the person. Oh, Here you go, no. judge. Okay, interesting, but also like yeah. Now I agree even more with that. <laughs> Boss Crump dies in 1954, and the former mayor faced never faced any consequences, and. There's a street in Memphis named after him. So basically, they they said, okay, well, she's dead. We can't do anything about it. All right. So 
1951, the special investigator, Robert Taylor, submits his formal report about Georgia Tan and the Tennessee Children's Home Society. And this leads the state of Tennessee to seal all adoption records. Okay. And this is where I just am so frustrated because it feels like... That's so unhelpful. The hits just keep coming that these victims who have faced horrors from the time they're very young are then hit with more things. So adoptees have to pay a $150 processing fee to access their records. Records that are probably not even accurate because of Tan's tactics. Many adoptive parents were afraid to look into their children's origins. Like, was my kid stolen or was was this a legitimate process? Because they were afraid that then their children would be taken away from them. Oh, that's so, that's such a hard place to be. So this led to a lot of families, some of them not even acknowledging that their children were adopted or not telling them till much later. Hmm. Some of these families, some of these cases, the adoptive parents have since passed away and these children are left wondering, you know, how much of what I was told about my adoption history is true. And some of those kids might not actually even know if they were adopted, if they weren't told. In the 1990s, a historian named Marion Glad founds an adoption nonprofit called Right to Know that helps these adoptees access their records and try and figure out more about their past. That sounds awesome. Yes. And lots of families have been reunited and or connected with distant relatives through the increased popularity of DNA tests like 23andMe, Ancestry.com, all that good stuff. You're not just catching a murderer. You're also finding someone's family. Yes. You're like, wait, why do I have distant cousins in Kentucky? Who knew? So the legacy of Georgia Tan and her practices, in a positive light, She really did normalize the practice of adoption when it was previously seen as weird or shameful, kind of kept in the shadows, kept in small communities. During her time at the Children's Home Society, relevant, yes, but publicly being the benefactor of this very successful children's organization, she had key political figures reaching out to her. Eleanor Roosevelt, for example. But now I'm questioning myself because I forgot to put it in my notes. <laughs> <laughs> that face. Um, but yeah, so she was seen as the kind of the, the spokeswoman for adoption. That's terrifying. Right? Because behind the scenes it was all dreadful. Um, but it is positive that at that time and even now today, adoption is much more accepted. It's seen as normal. So that's good. The negative is that she also normalized the secrecy of closed adoptions, which has now been institutionalized at state level in many places. That makes it more challenging for individuals who have been adopted and maybe would like to know more about their history, either health-wise or family-wise. So that's not great. And then now I'm going to share some notable media that's okay. related to this. So, Georgia Tan and her terrible practices were exposed in 1989 on Season 2, Episode 12 of Unsolved Mysteries. Woohoo! And actually, from this episode, they had lots of individuals and families writing in Aww. with their own stories because they were watching these and being like, wait a second, <gasps> this is my story. Both from the adoptee standpoint and the the birth parents of like, wait, a woman came in a black car and told me my child was going to the hospital or like I woke up from sedation and they told me my baby was dead. And so they had people writing in and this actually led to several family reunions through this show. That's so nice. Which I just love because it's 89, right? So like the internet isn't really no prevalent at all um the fact that and so many of these articles shared like 
so-and-so wasn't a regular viewer of the show. She was just flipping through the channels and happened to find this. I mean, it's all good journalism. It's good storytelling. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. it's just really awesome. So in 1993, there was a TV movie called Stolen Babies. <laughs> starring... Right to the point. Starring Mary Tyler Moore as Georgia Tan. Aww. Uh, yes, that was going to be my note. Just right to the point. We're not we're not covering it up. It's Stolen, Stolen Baby Stolen Babies. And it's Mary Tyler Moore. It was just like... <laughs> I mean, of the 60s, like, bubbly personality. That seems very counter, but I guess, you know, expand your... The 90s were weird. Yeah. Uh, in 2007, there was a nonfiction book released by Barbara Bizantz Raymond uh, called, it's like the longest subtitle in the world. Oh so, gosh. The Baby Thief. <laughs> the Untold Story of Georgia Tan, the Baby Seller Who Corrupted Adoption. Uh, which actually, I'm, I would be very interested to read. Yeah. Um, I did my research two days ago, so I didn't have time to That's read a whole fair. book. That's fine. But if anyone is interested in this case, in this history, that seems like a great resource you to also, start with. You read a whole book that introduced you to this topic. So. This is true, yes. Um, so then in 2013, Investigation Discoveries series Deadly Women had an episode on Georgia Tan. Great series. And that's actually what inspired Lisa Wingate's initial research binge into this topic, and that led to her novel, okay. Before We Were Yours, in 2017. And the book itself follows fictional families, but I okay. think it does a wonderful job sharing the emotional and challenging experiences of both the stolen children and their unknown descendants just because it flips back and forth between a timeline one is set during georgia tan's time with um a child and her siblings that have been taken and then another one is more modern day and this young woman discovers that her family history may not be what she thinks it is and it connects the dots it goes back and forth um, but that can be very challenging, too, I, yeah. I imagine, to think, you know, you have an idea of, oh, this is my mother, this is my mother, my mother's mother, you know, oh, that's my grandfather, but she had a first husband, whatever. Yeah. You think you know what you know, and then it, you find out that you don't. Um, and in the case of very powerful families, you have to question, did my great grandparents buy a stolen baby it's a whole thing yeah so Golly. highly recommend the novel i did the audiobook uh, which is also very good because they have two narrators or one narrator who's very good at two different voices <laughs> <laughs> um and then uh before and after is a non-fiction follow-up that follows the real stories of tan's victims and their families as they gather for for a reunion. Okay. Um, so Lisa Wingate and another author, um, Christy is the last name, uh, they they wrote that so they were interviewing these families. It's more just real life accounts, which I think is very interesting. I would definitely read the novel first and then the nonfiction follow-up, but that's just me. But highly recommend for anyone who is interested in learning more about this. Also, professional moment, bookseller corner. Uh, if you are planning to order books from your local bookstore this holiday season, please do. Order sooner rather than later. COVID-19 has caused a lot of printing delays and they're going to be prioritizing new releases and bestsellers. So if there's like a weird backlist paperback book from 2013 that you want to get your mom for Christmas, order it now because if you order it in December, it probably won't get to you. And use small businesses in your in your community because yes. they're struggling hardcore. Correct. All right. Well, that's that's kind of it for me. I have one final kind of wrap up note, but I'd love to check in with you. How are you doing? <laughs> that was so much. And I think, like, I mean, obviously, so this podcast is about, like, unknown things. And the most unknown thing that I can think of right now is, like, how many lives this has affected is completely incalculable. 
because it's the parents of the desperate parents probably of these kids who were thinking this person will take care of my child whether or not they were given up freely as like I can't take care of them or they were like signed off or anything like that or the poor people who don't like never knew what happened to their kids Mm -hmm. that kind of desperation I can't even fathom and then this woman goes around and is like yeah I do great things turns out she's an awful human being and these poor children are having to not only take care of themselves but take care of each other to make sure that they're not abused and oh my gosh like I can't this makes me want to adopt children more than I already do. Like, I'd already, I, Lewis and I have already planned, like, eventually in our lives we would like at least to adopt one child to make sure that they can have a wonderful and good life and we can enjoy another human being on this planet. But I cannot fathom the feeling of losing a kid, not, not to just, like, potential death, like, to lose them and know, okay, they're, they're gone, but to lose them and not know where they are, missing people are, that's terrifying to me. Yes. Get ready for next week because that's a missing person's case. You're welcome, me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that ties in beautifully to my next point. Which is, as we previously mentioned, this episode will be coming out after the U.S. presidential election on November 3rd, but there's still a massive amount of work to be done to protect children in this country, and particularly at our borders. Amen. Uh, Families are being separated, children are being kept in dirty and dangerous conditions even when they're sick, children are dying, and then there are children that we don't know where they are. There are children that are missing. Um, And it's up to those of us with a voice that have privilege to speak out for those who can't. So I have a little quick list from the Women's Refugee Commission of things that you can do to help migrant families and children. Uh, So you can learn the facts, do your research, and share those facts with those around you. Call your representatives to tell them where you, as a constituent, stand on this humanitarian issue. Uh, You can donate goods to private migrant shelters because most government centers can't or won't accept them. So if you are close to the border, um, you can donate in person. If not, you can research potentially mailing supplies to private shelters. You can support migrant families in your community, whether it's through childcare, through financial assistance, um, any way that you can support them and help them acclimate to your community. You can apply to be a foster parent or, and or a family. Offering migrant individuals and families a safe space can help facilitate an eventual reunion. Obviously, we do not want any child to be separated from their parent, but in the case of our current administration, this has been happening more often than not. Um, And having more foster families available to take in children um, helps keep them out of detention centers and hopefully could lead to them being reunited with their parents further down the line. And of course, if you're in a position to do so, please consider donating to organizations such as the Women's Refugee Commission, you know, again, using our privilege and using our power to help those who are in less fortunate positions is really all we can do. We should be doing. Yeah. So yeah, that's the end of my presentation for today. I'm sorry it was a bummer. (laughs) I hope that you have someone that you can go hug um, or a dog you can pet or a YouTube video you can watch, something to lighten your mood. Um, As always, you can find photos from today's episode on our Instagram, at this podcast doesn't exist. No apostrophe, because that's how handles work. And if you would like to send us an email, either if if you're an adopted kid, I guess, from this horrible woman, Um, and you have a story, I can't imagine why you're listening to us, 
Uh, you probably have many more things going on in your life, but uh, if you would like to send us an email for any reason whatsoever, um, you can email us at thispodcastdoesn'texist at gmail.com, no apostrophe. And if you would like to play bingo to make this episode a little lighter, um, hopefully you already knew that and you don't have to go back and listen to <laughs> listen to this episode, um, or you can remember it. You, you can find the bingo card. It uh, generates a new um, order every time you click on it on our link tree, which is in the bio of our Instagram. It's fun. One of my friends, Jordan, uh, has been listening to our our podcast and has been playing it and was very disappointed when the first episode got her no bingo (laughs) she was so upset because she was like i did there was so much there and i knew i knew i had it i knew i almost had it and it was this last one that she couldn't get (laughs) she was very upset it was just the way that the bingo card was generated so it's fun, apparently. Shannon plays it every week. I do. I play it while I listen to our own podcast. I don't play it because I edit these podcasts, and so I I don't necessarily <laughs> listen to our podcast. Emma's sick of our voices by the end of the well, process. I'm not sick of your voice. I am sick of my own voice. That's... My own voice is very jarring to me. Wow. Isn't that just the way it goes? I guess. If you are not sick of either of our voices, please consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And if you really love us and the podcast, if you could rate and review, that'd be amazing. Please it would make us... You. Happy. Yes, please. And since I am awful at self-promotion, don't worry, I will still be not doing great on my own social media, but you can find all of our little updates on our Insta. Um, so we'll we'll be alive and kicking there. Yes. And now, after the longest outro ever, remember, this podcast doesn't.